Well, good morning. Uh, because I'm a pastor, I'm exposed to death more than most people. For example, in the last couple weeks, I've been preparing for three different funeral slash memorial services. And this was true even before I became a pastor because my dad was a minister. And so we were often going to funerals, much more than the average person. And so we were exposed to this, this reality called death. And then some of you know that I worked for a florist for a little while. Uh, even to this day, I occasionally will make a floral arrangement for my wife. Here's a picture of one. I got some wild flowers from around our cabin in the woods, put together this little floral arrangement. But when I worked for the florist, mostly what I did was delivered flowers or cleaned up around the shop. And occasionally I had to go to a funeral home. And some of you maybe remember me talking about this. The first time I went to a funeral home, I pulled up in the van and, and parked it and was got, getting out the flowers. And I saw a guy standing in the parking lot. It was the mortician. And I said, I've got some flowers to deliver. And he said, just hold it. And then he walked over to a garage door. He opened it up and there was a, a metal table there with wheels on it and a body. <laughs> and then he began to drag and he says, follow me. And I would have been fine, except there was an arm hanging down. <laughs> I was like 17 at the time, like, I don't like this. Or another time I went to the funeral home and the director was there and I explained who the flowers were for and whatever. And, and, and he said, well, go ahead and put them in that room. There was this dimly lit room with a casket there. And he literally said to me, put the flowers by his head. And then he took off. And I stood there at that entrance, you know, like, I don't want to go in there. And I was afraid if I went in and set the flowers down that maybe the guy would sit up and then there'd be two bodies in there, you know. Subject of death is something we don't like to think about, we don't like to talk about it. Death is, of course, a part of life. But before we get to today's talk about the good news... I think we need to understand that death is actually worse than we think it is. It's actually a, a bigger deal than we think it is. So I want to expand our thinking just a little bit. When we think of the subject of death, we usually think about individuals who have passed away, our loved ones or whatever. And that's what we think of when you think of death, you know, people dying. But the concept of death is so much bigger than that. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, you know, God had told them, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. When they disobeyed God, death came into the world. And God had told them ahead of time, that's what's going to happen. The day you eat, you're going to die. And this set in motion the events that would lead to their eventual physical death. But what they don't, I don't think they understood or grasped fully, is that death as a principle was going to descend upon everything in creation. Everything would be scarred by this curse of death. It just changed literally everything. It became a problem affecting everyone and everything, all because of this one sin here. And so suddenly you get all of creation is subject to things like decay, mold, rust, corrosion, things like that. All of creation is subject to things like pain and sorrow and brokenness and suffering and death. All of it is part of it. And so it's a lot bigger deal than we think about. And what I want us to understand here today is that Jesus came into this world to fix the bigger problem of death, not just the problem of our eternal destiny. It's so much bigger than that, what he came to do. 
Physical death, in fact, is only part of the problem with death because there's a spiritual death that accompanied it as well. This is not just a physical problem. I'm just telling you that everything was scarred by this. A scholar by the name of E.A. Blum writes, physical death is the divine object lesson of what sin does in the spiritual realm. As physical death ends life and separates people, so spiritual death is the separation of people from God and the loss of life, which is in God. Apostle Paul talked about this. He said, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. There's a spiritual separation. We understand it in the physical realm, the separation that takes place. We say goodbye to our loved ones. But spiritually, the same thing is true as well, that there's a gap between us and God. Our sins have made a separation between people and God. But Jesus came into this world and submitted himself to death, specifically so he could defeat it. And not just, again, physical death in terms of people, but all of it. My takeaway today is this, that Jesus came to strip death of its power over everything. He came to solve everything that went wrong in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God and and death spread to everything, suddenly work was work. Suddenly having children was painful. You know, everything was cursed by this. Suddenly there were thorns and thistles and, and things like that. Everything was impacted. In fact, the Apostle Paul says all creation is groaning right now under the, under the pain of, of this curse of death. But one day it'll be defeated once and for all. Now, Jesus already defeated death, but it's still with us for a little while longer. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 26 and 27, he said, the last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet, under the feet of Jesus Christ. The very last thing is death itself and all of its impact on all of creation is going to be abolished because even death is going to be subject to Jesus along with everything else. And that's the day we're looking forward to. Now, today we wrap up our series called Face to Face. We've been looking at encounters that Jesus had with various people, but today's encounter is really with this thing called death. Of course, he interacted with people in the process of it, but he came to disarm death for us. Now, the story we're going to look at today is, I know it's new for some of you, but for some of you, it's probably very familiar. But I hope we'll look at some details that you haven't thought of The purpose of the story, though, the purpose of the miracle was bigger than even the miracle itself. Jesus raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. He had been in the tomb for four days, but it's not, this isn't just about that miracle. This was a miracle that was intended to prove that Jesus was the Lord over death. It's a miracle that was intended to point to the hope that we have when we die. Because Jesus faced death squarely, face to face. He defeated it. Now, again, its effects are still with us for the time being. But Jesus came to strip death of its power over everything. So let me set the context for the story. This event of raising Lazarus from the dead occurred about a week before Jesus himself was arrested and tried and crucified. The irony of this particular miracle is that this was a miracle of raising someone who is dead to life 
but it was the miracle that set in motion his own death. It was this particular miracle that finally got the religious leaders to say, this guy's got to die. It was the last straw for them. And so in giving life to this guy, he himself would end up dying on a cross. Now, Jesus, when he walked the earth, of course, did a number of amazing miracles. And from my perspective, this is the most fascinating one, the most powerful one. John, the gospel writer, actually mentions seven different miracles. And some of you that know Bible numbers know that the number seven is the number of God. You know how God rested on the seventh day. It's the number of perfection or whatever. Well, John, when he wrote his gospel, specifically included seven miracles that Jesus performed. For example, he turned water into wine, showing his power over creation. He healed the son of an official, but what was significant about that particular miracle is that the, the boy was 20 miles away when this healing took place. Just the word of Jesus brought it about. He healed someone at the pool of Bethesda. He fed 5,000 men, plus women, plus children, probably a group of 15 to 20,000, which is an amazing miracle. Of course, on another occasion in the other gospels, he, he also did that for 4,000. He walked on water and he calmed the storm. He said, be quiet. And then he healed a man who was born blind, which I talked about last week. But today we look at the last, and again, I think it's the greatest miracle. It's the one that illustrates that if Jesus could fix this problem, he could fix any problem. And it is indeed, again, our greatest problem because I think death is the word that defines everything that came upon creation. The curse, if I gave it one word name, it would be death. That's what happened. Adam and Eve sinned, and God said, the day you eat, you'll die. And death came upon this world. Dr. Warren Wearsby writes about this. If Jesus can do nothing about death, then whatever else he can do amounts to nothing. Which I think is a very, I think that's right. If he can't fix this problem, what, what does the rest of it even matter if he can't solve this one once and for all? So let's begin reading the story, and I want to make some observations about it, beginning in verse 1 of John 11. Now, a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Let me stop here for a moment. A couple years ago, I just noticed the fact that it emphasized how much Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and then it says, so... He waited two days. That doesn't seem like what Jesus would normally do. You know, if you received word that someone you love desperately and you could do something about it, you know, would you wait two more days because you love them? And it demonstrates to me that sometimes the most loving thing God does for us is makes us wait. It, it may not seem like it at the time, but, but Jesus and God the Father they had something else in mind here that was going to be better and more wonderful, something that would reveal and bring glory to Jesus, which all these miracles were about that. 
Our, uh, Jesus is coming into this world and all the miracles he performed were demonstrating his authority over everything, over sickness, over nature, multiplying the bread, like manna in the Old Testament, all the miracles. The last big thing he needed to do, though, was this a miracle involving death, somebody that was, you know, been dead for a while and whose death could not be disputed. Now, Mary and Martha, because Lazarus was sick, sent a message, message to Jesus. Jesus at the time was doing ministry about 20 miles away. And so the messenger took off, and if he, if he went pretty fast, it would take him most of the day to get there. He'd arrive in the evening of that day, perhaps, if he went pretty fast with this news. What the messenger didn't know, but the context makes clear, is that Lazarus was long dead by the time he got there. Most likely, Lazarus died within an hour of the guy leaving. Not only that, by the time he communicated to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, he was already in the tomb. In biblical times, they used to bury people on the same day because of the climate. And so this guy took off, had no idea that shortly after he left, Lazarus died, and they put him in the tomb. Now, what's interesting about that is he, he arrives to Jesus and he's, he gives the news, the one you love is sick or whatever, and, and Jesus responds, this is not gonna end in death. It's just ironic because he's already dead. And I imagine that this messenger went back to Martha and said, Jesus said this isn't gonna result in death. And as soon as he said that to Mary and Martha, they'd say, he's already dead. I mean, I don't know what they did with that information. In either case, though, it took a day for him to get the message. He waited two more days and did nothing, and then he announced to his disciples that he was going to be going to Bethany, where Lazarus was. Now, it would have been the, the fourth day. The disciples argued with him at this point. They said, don't you remember what happened last time we were in Bethany? They, they tried to stone you to death. But Jesus said, Lazarus has died, and we need to go. And of course, if you're in the center of God's will, you don't have to fear anything. And so they made this day-long trip to Bethany. Now we skip ahead in the story to verse 17 to 20 in John 11. When Jesus arrived, we read, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. So many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, that it's interesting to me that Mary didn't go out when Jesus arrived. And why it's interesting is that between Mary and Martha, the one that I think loved Jesus the most, the one that had the biggest heart for Jesus was Mary, it wasn't Martha. Mary was the one we read about in Luke 10, was sitting at Jesus' feet, just taking it all in. Mary was the one who broke this expensive bottle of perfume. My research indicates that that bottle of perfume would have cost, in today's dollars, about $50,000. And she broke it over his feet and dried his feet with her hair. This is Mary. Jesus shows up in the town. Word comes to Mary and Martha. Jesus is here and she stays. I think she was mad. I think she was hurt. She was distressed. I don't think she felt she could even face him. 
I mean, this is, this is Jesus. He could have healed Lazarus from a distance. And he wasn't even there. And then, then when news reaches Jesus, the messenger came back, but he didn't come. Two more days. Martha, though, went out and was willing to talk with Jesus. Now, the text indicates it was the fourth day that he had been in the tomb, and, and that is significant, at least in terms of the culture of the day, because evidence indicates that Jewish rabbis in biblical times had the theology that uh, the soul of a person stayed near the body for three days, but then at the end of three days, it was hopeless. D.A. Carson writes about this, that the rabbis taught the soul hovers over the body of the deceased person for the first three days, intending to re-enter it, but as soon as it sees its appearance change, i.e., that decomposition has set in, it departs. Now, I don't know where they got that theology. It's not in the Bible anywhere that the soul stays near a body for three days, but, it, but that's what the people believed. Jesus deliberately, though, I believe, waited four days because it was essential that this miracle not be a resuscitation. It had to be a resurrection. It had to be clear to literally everybody there. He's dead and gone. There is no hope. And this establishes, once again, Jesus' amazing authority over our greatest enemy, death, which, again, death is bigger than just this one life. So Martha approaches Jesus and says, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And they were kind of raw words, I'm sure. I think she was upset as well. Again, they'd seen Jesus do miracles. Jesus responded to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he's going to rise again at the resurrection of the last day. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. I don't know if you registered that statement. Everyone who lives, that's you and me, and believes in me, which I hope is you and me, will never die, ever. That's the claim Jesus was making here. How could that be true? People die all the time, right? No, what Jesus is saying here, and it is, it's the ultimate truth. Christians don't die. We go from life to life. For Christians, it's a mere transition. It's like an open door. You walk from this room to this room. That's what it is for Christians. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you're given eternal life. And that sticks with you, well, eternally, forever and ever. And so Jesus asked her, do you believe this? Verse 27, Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Now, those of you that are familiar with John's gospel know that John not only listed seven miracles that Jesus performed, all showing his authority over different things, but he also made seven claims, I am the statements about himself. Seven times Jesus said, I am, and then fill in the blank. And that's very, very significant because I think Jesus was claiming to be the great I am of the Old Testament. Moses asked the question of God, what is your name? He answered, Yahweh. 
And it means I am. Or it can be translated, I am that I am. He alone is the self-existent one. And Jesus claimed that title for himself. At one time, he was talking with the religious leaders. He said, before Abraham was, I am. They knew what he was saying. They picked up stones to put him to death. They accused him of blasphemy. You're making such a claim for yourself. But earlier in, the, in this gospel, he had said things like, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the gate to the sheepfold. If you want to be part of God's flock, you got to come through me as the gate. I am the good shepherd. And then here, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's claiming to be the very source of all life. And if you begin reading in the Gospel of John, you'll see it establishes that Jesus Christ is the creator. He created all things. Nothing was made apart from Christ. And that he's the one that brought life into existence, but not just life. He's also the source of the resurrection life. That's what he was claiming. Now, Jesus is going to make two more claims in the gospel. He's going to say at one point in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was one of his claims. Can't get to God except you come through me. And then he said, I am the vine and you're the branches. Stay connected to me if you want to bear fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Because God is glorified when we bear fruit, but stay connected to me. These were all amazing claims. But all of them are demonstrating that Jesus came into this world to fix everything. Whatever the subject is, he came to fix it through these claims. But he claimed to be the great I am. And ultimately what he was coming to do is strip the curse of death. Strip death of its power over literally everything. Now, at this point in the story, after Martha said, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I I believe you are who you say you are, and that kind of thing, then Jesus said, go get Mary, and so they fetched Mary, and Mary came, and Mary, Martha, and Jesus, plus a bunch of mourners who had been sitting with Mary, they all joined Jesus down at the cave where Lazarus had been buried. When they arrived, most likely, there was a lot of commotion there. A scholar by the name of D.A. Carson writes, Jewish funeral customs dictated that even a poor family was expected to hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman. Can you imagine that job? <laughs> what I do for a living, oh, I'm, a, I'm a professional wailer, <laughs> you know. But this is indicating that, that those who are poor were expected at the very least to hire two flute players to play the sad music and then you got the, the wailing woman who's professional howler or whatever. <laughs> I suspect they, there was a lot more commotion than that though going on because again, Mary and Martha think they were wealthy. They would have hired several musicians. They would have hired several women. They wanted to display in an outward sense their sorrow over Lazarus' passing. And so it was a really a lot of commotion when Jesus shows up there. And then we read in the text, Jesus wept. The Greek word that's used to describe his weeping there is not the, the, the uh, wailing. It, it's soft. It's, it's referring to a soft, tender weeping. It's an interesting thing that Jesus wept here because Jesus knew what he was about to do. You you know, raises the question, why are you weeping? This is about to turn into a party. And he knew that. 
And yet you see him standing there weeping. Why is he weeping? I believe, and it ties in with the whole point I'm making. He saw how death impacted everything. This world is not as God created it. The one you're sitting in right now, when God created things, it was good every day. Good, 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 good. Everything was beautiful, perfect. No thorns, no thistles, no pain, no sorrow. Everything was good. And then sin came into the world and this, this scourge of death came upon everything. And I envisioned Jesus standing around and looking at the brokenness. And his heart broke. This isn't, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But Jesus came to fix this, to strip death of its power over everything. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus came to pay the wage. We continue the story in verse 39. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he's already decaying. It's been four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? Now, earlier... Of course, Martha had professed her faith in Jesus, so it's a little bit of a mystery why is she arguing with Jesus here. But I I think that both were true. Martha did believe what Jesus claimed, that he was the resurrection and the life. It's just that in her mind, she couldn't get it out of her mind that Jesus was referring to a future resurrection. It it just never occurred to her that anyone could do anything about this situation. Never entered her mind. She never gave herself even permission to think that anybody, even Jesus, could fix this thing. But Jesus has removed the stone, and she exercised a certain amount of trust in Jesus to do what he said. In biblical times, death was something that made people unclean. You don't even want to open the, you don't even open the tomb. We read at this point, though, that they did it, and then Jesus prayed. I think it's important that Jesus prayed because one of the important parts of what Jesus came to do was to to trust his Father through the miracles that he performed. Jesus could have, of course, performed any of these miracles through his own power, his own authority, but he chose to go through this entire life for 33 years as a man. And every miracle he turned to his Father about. Before the breaking of bread, remember, he looked up into heaven. All these different miracles, he prayed. This is essential because Jesus needed to live a a, a perfectly human existence. He had, had in his humanity, had to have said no to temptation. He was sorely tempted before he began his ministry. In In his humanity, he said no. And he went the distance without sinning so that he could become for us the flawless sacrifice to pay for the sin of the world. And so he prayed about this, knowing what his father was going to do. And then we read in verse 43, after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came and bound, or came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. It's Augustine who lived in the 4th century A.D. who is credited with saying that if Jesus had not said, Lazarus, come forth, that all the dead would have come up at that point. But Lazarus came out of the ground. This is a scene I, I hope to see one day in heaven. I, I hope we can look at the Bible stories, rewind them. I just want to see some of these miracles. This is one. 
I, I like to put myself in the scene as I'm reading these stories, and I'm imagining that I'd been there with Mary and Martha, and I, I'm standing there at the tomb, and there's no, no mistaking it, he's dead. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and a, and a body comes out. Let him loose. Uh, it had to send chills down your spine. The odd thing is that not everyone reacted to the miracle the same way. And this is true of today, too, about Jesus. We don't all react to what we know about Jesus the same way. The story concludes, beginning in verse 5, we read, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There was a group of tattletales. They saw this miracle, and what did they do? Instead of putting their trust in Jesus, they wanted to run run and tell, he did it again. And again, this was the miracle that was the final straw for the religious leaders. We've got to put him to death. I can't imagine people that have seen, had seen these things with their own eyes and the miracles, and yet they refused to turn to Jesus. We, of course, see it through faith. So what do we do with this? Well, again, my main takeaway, Jesus came to strip death of its power over everything. Everything he did when he came into this world, the miracles, the claims he made, everything he did was to demonstrate his authority over literally everything, but this last one was the big deal. He raised this guy from the dead who who it was impossible, pointing again to his own death and resurrection. It raises the question for some of us, what will you do with Jesus? And I ask this almost every week. Do you understand who he is? Do you understand his claims? Do you realize he's the... He is the resurrection and the life. Will you put your trust in him? That's what he asks of us. You know the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him. It's not about believing a bunch of facts. It's recognizing that we ourselves have been touched by sin and death. We die because we've sinned and we can't fix it. And ultimately, Jesus came to pay the price to strip death of its power over everything. And Jesus paid an enormous price to extend to you forgiveness as a free gift. You can accept it or you can reject it. In Jesus' day, people responded both ways. Some said yes, some said no. But I encourage you to put your trust in Christ, to acknowledge I know I need a Savior, and I believe, Jesus, you died for me. I receive you as my Savior. I welcome you as my Savior. It's really as, as simple as that. But if you're already a Christian here today, I want us to understand that that, um, being a Christian is not just about what I call eternal life insurance. Like, it's not about just put your faith in Christ so you'll go to heaven. Jesus made another claim. He said, not just that I'm the resurrection and, and the life, but he talked about the fact that he wanted to give us an abundant life. He said, I came that you may have life, but that you may have it abundantly. He came to give us, of course, eternal life. But in the present, he wants to give us life and abundant life, or some versions translated life in the full. What's interesting about the context of that claim is that he said that from within the context of a shepherd with sheep. And the image is a bunch of sheep who are by those waters of Psalm 23, 
and they are well fed and they're completely full and the shepherd is there in the field protecting them and they're enjoying just the blessedness of, of being there in that place with him. And that's what I think Jesus wants us to understand, that our, our lives connected to him is what leads to an abundant life, not just eternal life. He has come that we might have an abundant life. We're going to close with a song here. I want to read some of the words of the song. It's called Back to Life, and it ties in with our story. It goes, some of the words, no longer I who live, but Christ in me, because Christ wants to live his life in us. For I've been born again, my heart is free, the hope of heaven before me, the grave behind. Hallelujah, you've brought me back to life. I won't forget the moment I heard you call my name out of the grip of darkness into the light of grace, just like Lazarus. Oh, you've brought me back to life. Let's pray before we close with this song. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the cost that both of you were willing to pay, that you love the world in this way, that you'd send him to be our savior, our deliverer, to break the chains of death that came upon everything. I ask you, Lord, that if there are any here today that have not said yes to Jesus, that they would do so today. I also ask you, Lord, that you'd help us when we're in a world where it's so easy to be distracted by so many things, but help us to fix our eyes on you the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.